chapter 1 is where we're going eventually. Can everybody hear me? Everybody okay? All right, good. Fantastic. Uh, so again, happy Mother's Day to you moms. That is today on our calendar here in the U.S. and other uh, parts of the world as well. But on the church calendar, globally, um, this is, uh, well, it's the time of where we recognize the ascension, the ascension of Christ, that is. Uh, this Thursday, we will recognize Ascension Day. It marks 40 days since we celebrated Easter this year. And so uh, it's different for some churches. We'll recognize Ascension Day on the Sunday prior to the Ascension Thursday, other churches on the Sunday after Ascension. So uh, we feel like it's important. So we're going to recognize Ascension Day uh, this morning in our study. And so, again, if you have your Bible, take it and find Acts chapter 1, and we'll get uh, there in just a moment. And so I, I want to, we're, we're actually discussing this this morning a little bit earlier for a little bit of context. Um, you know, it was some years ago when I was kind of gripped with the idea that, um, you know, most of the significant days on the church calendar, of course, are built around significant moments in the life of Jesus. And most of those, we, broadly speaking, are familiar with, right? Like the big headline uh, the headline days, uh, uh, the birth of Christ, right? We have Christmas where we recognize that, let's just say in grand style, right? Christmas, that's Easter. Um, the crucifixion of Christ, we have a day for that. We recognize that was Good Friday. That's part of our pattern. And then, of course, the resurrection of Christ. For that, we have Easter. And so for for you know, most all of us, and here I'm talking to, you know, evangelicals, um, we have those, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, we have been formed uh, by our pattern recognition of these important uh, days in the life of Jesus. Well, some years ago, I was kind of gripped with the recognition that, um, you know, for, for other parts of the church, for other believers in other parts of the church, um, Ascension Day is recognized as significantly as these other high point days of, of the year. And so I was gripped with the idea that for, for me in my own experience, I had, honestly, I had not been formed as deeply by the recognition of Ascension Day as I had been, comparatively speaking, by Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. So I was kind of gripped by that. And... Um, and so I made uh, a conscious effort to at least try to recapture uh, the juice, you know, of Ascension Day. And like, like, what would happen if we become deliberate about recognizing Ascension Day, um, reflecting on it in a regular on a regular basis, and and how might that uh, form us, right? So, so this is my attempt to sort of address. Um, address that right like so i mean so again I'm, I'm speaking from evangelical you know my evangelical experience and ascension day here's my take this is a very significant moment rich with meaning for the early believers the earliest followers of jesus deeply impactful big big day um but honestly in our in our tradition at least ascension day gets little recognition right you can go into the corner drugstore and find a Christmas card for your friends. You can probably even find a Good Friday card. You can probably even find an Easter card. But you can't find an Ascension Day card, you know, for your 
for your friends. So it's a, so it's a big day, an important day, um, with comparatively small notoriety, and that's unfortunate. So this is my attempt to sort of recapture um, the significance of Ascension Day. Okay, so with all that, here, let's just read it, um, and then we'll work with it some. This is from Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 9. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. And they said, the men in white robes said, men of Galilee, speaking to Jesus' disciples, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Man. I mean, just try to imagine, right? Like try to put your feet into the sandals of the disciples. You know, the whole gang, they're there, Peter, James, John, and so on. But try to put your feet into their sandals. I mean, pure astonishment in this moment, right? So questions that kind of set the tone for us. Starting with, what did this mean? What does this mean? What did this mean to them, the disciples, now apostles? What did this mean to the apostles? Did this mean that Jesus had abandoned them? Like he, he, was, he, he was here and now he's gone? He'd been abandoned? Did this, did this mean that Jesus has now left them alone on earth while he went away to some remote place called heaven? Did Jesus just take a new address? Where is heaven? What does, that, what does Luke mean when he uses this language? Where did Jesus go? What, what are we supposed to think about this? And again, what does this mean? And so today what I want to try to do is look at, look at this moment from two, two angles. And, and the first angle is like the, the lived out flesh and blood meaning of this, of this happening. And then secondly, I want to try to do a little bit um, to look at the, mm, I'm going to use the word meaning again, but not in the same way. Like what is the spiritual, what is the theological meaning, I guess, um, of this event, right? Or, or to say it another way, what difference does it make? What, what difference does ascension make? What is the significance, right? So we're going to look at what is the nature of the ascension as a moment in space and time, and then we're going to look at what is the significance of the ascension for we who are pursuing and following Jesus here and now. Okay, so first angle. So what happens? What, what's going on in this moment that Luke is describing? So that's the first question we want to we wanna deal with. And the first thing that we have to grapple with is that the word heaven appears four times in a span of a couple of verses. So I think the first thing that we have to do is get a grip on what this word means. And I want to just plow into it and say something that may sound uh, rather surprising. But I just want to say this, and I've said it before, but we'll say it again. Heaven is not a place. Heaven is not an address. It's not 
a location. Now, heaven, as the word is used here, refers to a dimension of reality. Um, and that's, we, sometimes we say the word heaven refers to God's dimension of reality. And that's not even completely right way to say it. Because that might imply that the other dimensions of reality are not God's dimensions, and that's not the intended consequence. It's just to say that when, when the Bible wants to differentiate or, or expand um, into describing all of the dimensions of reality together, the Bible frequently uses the language of heaven and earth. It's a way of saying everything, right? So heaven and earth. So in that, in that context, when the Bible uses the phrase heaven and earth, it's not talking about that address and this address. It's, it's the reference is everything, right? So like, for example, uh, Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's not saying there, all authority over there, that other place called heaven and this other address called earth. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's another way of saying all, all authority in all spaces, all authority in all dimensions, right? So you have like dimensions there's uh breadth height depth and heaven it's god's dimension uh colossians 1 for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers all things have been created through him and for him this is just another place in this case the apostle paul working out um he's stretching the bounds of language here to say when i say all things on heaven and earth i mean everything invisible visible thrones dominions rulers powers everything so again it's the use of heaven and earth to describe the totality of everything and then matthew 10 you're familiar with this one jesus taught in the lord what we call the lord's prayer your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in God's dimension. So heaven is not an address. It's God's, it's the, it's, it's God's dimension. It's a way of describing everything. When I think about this, I always think about, uh, this is back in the 60s, um, back when, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in the space race. Does anybody remember that? The space back in the 60s uh, and 70s and so on. Um, kind of miss those days, you know. I kind of miss the space. I don't miss the whole, you know, paranoia about the Soviet Union. I don't miss. I don't miss that. But I do kind of miss the space race. You know, it felt like we were getting things done back then. You know, I'm with Elon Musk on this. He says it's been too long since we've been to the moon, and I agree. Um, so, but but uh, but back during those days. Uh, the Soviet Union was the, was the first nation to put a person in orbit around the earth. And his, his name was Yuri Gagarin, Gagarin. Um, probably not pronouncing it right. But um, it was a 108-minute a flight. He, he uh, uh, orbited the earth one full ro rotation, you know, around the earth. And when he got back to terra firma, there was a story that went around. It's since been refuted, so it's... It's not quite, we, we don't know for sure that he said it, but, but there was a story that went around, at least here on our side of the, of the, uh, mm, the competition, right? The whole thing, because you know, the whole thing with that whole, it was the Soviet Union versus the United States and they're communists and, and we're 
you know, a democracy and they're atheists and we're Christian, right? There was all those dimensions to that whole, to that whole thing. And so this story went around that after um, Yuri got back to terra firma, that one of the things he said, he said, you know, while I was up there, I looked and looked, but I didn't see God anywhere. Um, again, that report was disputed, but, but the point is, um, e- even if someone invented that story, the point is that, you know, the assumption that emerges from language like that is when we talk about God being in heaven, we mean somewhere out there, somewhere up there. And this is simply not so. W- when we say that, that, uh, that, uh, when we talk about heaven and earth, when we talk about heaven, we're talking about this dimension of reality that is as, uh, as essential to reality as width, height, depth, and heaven. It's a dimension of reality. It's not an address. It's not a location. It's God's dimension. And so, when it says that Jesus went, first it says that Jesus went up, and then it says he went into heaven, it doesn't mean that Jesus went to some distant place. That's not what Luke intends to say at all. It means that Jesus transitioned into this dimension of reality called heaven. We might call it God's undiluted dimension, which is the sense that Jesus uses it in the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, your, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is describing there is a dimension of reality where the problems are not, and we call that dimension heaven. There's a dimension of reality where the problems are, and that's earth. Your will be done, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So sometimes we forget this and we need a reminder occasionally. Um, and let me just say, we even, we commonly in our speech, we even use the word up to describe something other than a change of spatial location, Right? When we say, sometimes we say the word up, we do mean to describe, you know, something that went from a lower place to a higher place. But sometimes we use the word up to describe something other than a spatial direction, right? Like sometimes we use the word up to describe maybe a a change of some kind of relationship, right? Like, so my child finished the fifth grade, and so now she's moving up to the sixth grade. Well, she's not physically moving up. We mean there's some kind of change in relationship. We mean up there in a different sense rather than a spatial change. Or we might say in in our common language, yeah, uh, Joe got a promotion, so he's moving up to vice president. Well, we don't mean he's moving physically up. We mean he is, well, being promoted, right? Like George Jefferson, moving on up. Well, I guess in their case, to a deluxe apartment in the sky, this, they did move physically up maybe. Maybe their new apartment was higher than the other apartment. I don't know. But, but really what they mean is that the Jeffersons were, you know, the, the dry cleaning business was going really well for George Jefferson. And so he's moving up socially, right? So the sense there, I think, I, I would argue, is not strictly spatial. It is, in his case, socioeconomically, right? So we use the word up in a way that's n- not directly intended to mean a spatial change. So think about it like that then. What is Luke saying here? 
in this moment, this vignette. Jesus, we might say, is moving on up. Jesus is moving, in fact, we're going to see in just a moment, Jesus is moving all the way up. Jesus, in fact, Luke wants to say, and I'm going to make the case for this, Luke wants to say that in this moment that Jesus is being promoted to CEO of the universe, to president of the universe. Jesus is being enthroned here as king overall. That's the sense of what Luke is saying. In fact, you keep reading the book of Acts and you see that this is exactly what the followers of Jesus took away from this moment. The ascension, you know, this, this, this story is given to us by Luke in the first chapter of Acts, and there's a reason for that. Because this is the moment that sparks all of the activity that you see throughout the book of Acts. This is if, and this is not a good reference, but, but if the work of the apostles as we find it through the book of Acts, if it, if it could be thought of as a, I don't even want to, eh, that doesn't work, never mind, forget it. I want it, what I want to say, I'm not going to say it, but what I want to say is if, if all of that activity could be, could be thought of like a beautiful bomb exploding, <laughs> then the ascension is the fuse. This is, what, this is what gets everything going, right? And it has to do with this idea of the kingship of Jesus. And so the imagery of this, even on the surface, this is an astonishing image. Um, but it is not a telling of a departure. This is not a story that tells us about a departure of Jesus to some distant place far above. No, this moment shows us this unforgettable picture of Jesus being promoted, enthroned as the world's true president and king everywhere, right here even, and right now. And so just to, again, interact with some common language, listen, God is not the man upstairs. He's not. That's uh, a mistaken notion. God does not relate to us like a man in the attic might relate to the people down in the house. No, God is near, always present. And you remember this from Sunday school. We learned the three omnis, right? God is omnipotent means he can all, all power. God is omniscient, all-knowing. And then what's the third one? Omnipresent. God is everywhere present. He's not the man upstairs. He, has, he, hasn't, he hasn't moved to the attic. He hasn't moved away. He's present. He's always everywhere present. Um, so God relates to us, I guess if we want to interact with that, he relates to us not like a man in the attic might relate to the people down in the house, but maybe more like a playwright relates to the characters in her play, especially if she writes herself into her own story. That's what God has done in Christ. He is involved with us, here with us, always. And so I think it's important to take the time to work with this because sometimes we get our wires crossed and we think of heaven as some remote place where God is and we are not and we think of earth as a place where we are and where God is at least mostly not <laughs> um, but remember in contrast to that way of thinking remember the whole point 
of the mission of Jesus is what he called the kingdom of heaven, which is to say Jesus' entire mission is to bring about the unfolding, the blooming of a new alternative reality on earth that he called the kingdom of heaven, which is to say that the characteristics of God's dimension would be more and more fully known and experienced in the dimension that we call earth. That's the big story. That's the big mission. That's the story of the Bible. In fact, if you read all the way to the end, Revelation 20, 21, you see John portrays this in symbolic terms when he says, he, he describes what he calls the new Jerusalem descending onto earth. What's he describing? He's describing the full and complete joining of heaven and earth. It's a, it's a pictorial version of what Jesus taught him to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So just one more, just to kind of work with this a little bit before we move too fast. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Um, if you, if you li- and this is just my observation, but if you listen to many Christians talk about their faith, chances are, and you can test this by your own observation, I'm just speaking from my observation, chances are that in the average lexicon, kind of like religious vocabulary of the average, at least evangelical Christian, you're going to hear, I would predict, you will frequently hear phrases like heaven and hell, and you'll seldom hear phrases like heaven and earth in the common vernacular, the common speech of the common evangelical. As a matter of fact, for, for many Christians, it seems like, for many, the totality of their understanding of faith is bounded by these two notions, heaven and hell. And sometimes you hear people say it quite strongly, that, in fact, that's what the Christian faith is about. It's about heaven and hell. But I want to just tell you something interesting. I'm not really asking you to do this, but you can if you want. If you were to get your hands on a Bible search engine, and you were to ask that search engine, show me all the verses in the Bible where the words heaven and hell appear together. You know what that search engine will tell you? Siri will talk back to you and say, not found, zero. There's not a single verse in the Bible where the words heaven and hell are found together. And then you turn it around and you say, okay, show me all the verses in the Bible where the words heaven and earth appear together. And it's going to be somewhere around 400 times. So that's interesting, isn't it? Considering, in contrast to that, like, factual reality about our sacred text, um, it's interesting that somehow we've come here now 2,000 years into the Jesus Revolution, and many of us are preoccupied by this, this notion of heaven and hell, and our sacred texts seem to have no consciousness of that. But what our texts are preoccupied with is this notion of heaven and earth, the bringing together of heaven and earth, which really is a way of saying the transformation of earth to be more and more like a place where God is really king. That's the idea. So here's the big takeaway. Heaven does indeed have a paired up counterpart in the, I'm going to say, 
you know, these sacred texts are given, given to us by the spirit-led religious imagination of its original authors, right? So, so there is, in, in the spiritual imagination of, of the original authors of our sacred texts, heaven does have a paired-up counterpart, and it's not hell. The paired-up counterpart of heaven is earth. This is the mission of God by his spirit. The big, broad story of the Bible is the joining together of heaven and earth. That's the big story of history. That's the big story of the gospel. That's the big story of Jesus. That's what's going on. And in fact, that's exactly what Luke is saying here. Think about this. Think about it like this. What Luke is saying when he describes the person, Jesus of Nazareth, entering into heaven, well, one of the implications of that is that in the person of Jesus Christ, think about it, heaven and earth are already joined together. The man, the human being, Jesus Christ, Luke is saying, has entered into heaven. And so what Luke is saying here, if, if nothing else, and there is a lot else that he's saying, but if nothing else, what Luke is saying here is that, in fact, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, his resurrected body, certainly it's a different kind of body somehow. You take the Easter story, and it's different. He can walk through walls, he, you know, but it's still a body. He ate, you know, he still likes fried catfish. And so in that very human body, different, glorified, we say sometimes, but a body nevertheless, in that human resurrected body, he has entered into heaven. And so in the person of Jesus Christ, heaven and earth are already joined together. And now again, we go back, we refer back to um, the, the Revelation chapter 20 and 21. We're going to see the full and final and complete joining together of heaven and earth. That's where the story is going. But in Jesus, it's already happened, Luke is saying. This is astounding. So, those are just some reflections on the, I don't mean this wrong, but on the surface, like the moment, like the happening. That's some of the significance of that. Now, second question, what are the implications of this event for those of us who are, those who are following Jesus then and there, and those of us who are following Jesus here and now? Well, a couple more angles on that. Um, Luke is doing something here in this story that may not be completely obvious to us and for reasons that you'll understand. But um, so what, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 7 because Luke is interacting here with well, I'll say it's a prophecy from Daniel that we may not be readily familiar with, but Luke's original audience, 100%, would have been completely familiar with this account from the book of Daniel. Um, and so I want to just take two historical angles, and one is this book of Daniel, and then we're going to talk from, from Greek culture. Luke is interacting with both ancient Jewish culture and with the then modern Greek culture in ways that might not be uh, immediately obvious to us. 
but would have been obvious because Luke's original readers. Okay, so here's this take from Daniel 7. Daniel says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Listen to this. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he, the one like a son of man, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, so look at this. Now, again, this is Daniel. This is ancient prophecy. Uh, uh, would have been richly incorporated into the hearts and minds and religious thinking of all of Luke's original audience. Every Jew, Jewish boy and girl knew that story, right? Like, just like we know the story of Rocky Balboa, I didn't go down, I didn't go down. I mean, every little Jewish boy and girl knows this story, this prophecy from Daniel. Now, look at the pieces of it. Son of man. You know, this was Jesus, his, his most frequent title for himself, the son of man. And I love the, uh, there's one uh, modern Bible translation, um, Common English Bible, it consistently translates son of man as the human one. I just think that's so great, which is more literally what it would mean. The son of, what is a son, what is a son of a human? A human, <laughs> right? So son of man is the human one. Uh, so, so look at this, the pieces of this Daniel picture. There's a son of man. He's coming in the clouds, he says. He comes before the Ancient of Days. This is Daniel's way of describing God, the title for God here in this passage. So the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. He comes with the clouds. And then look what happens. The Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man. What? Authority, glory, sovereign power, supreme power. And what happens next? All nations, every people, every language worship him. And then Daniel tells us his dominion is forever. And his kingdom will never be destroyed. Now again, we're doing this in reverse order. But if you had grown up a little Jewish girl or Jewish boy, you would know this report from Daniel. You would know all about this. Son of man. With clouds before the ancient of days. Ancient of days gives to the human one glory and power and sovereign, and it's forever. You would know that story. You would know that picture from Daniel. And so think about it. You have that in, in, uh, embossed in your mind, and then you come across this report from Luke. Are you kidding me? Jesus ascends. He's wrapped in the clouds, and he's taken into heaven. You would immediately make the connection with Daniel 7. You would immediately recognize, oh, Luke is saying that Daniel's prediction has happened in Jesus. That's, that's the point with this ancient prophetic vision etched in your memory. You would instantly put these two things together. Clearly, Luke is saying that this ancient prophecy given by Daniel, with all of its 
uh, what do you say? This is what Daniel is saying is absolute. It's total. Supreme authority. Authority over all authorities, and it's unchanging. It's it's never to be uh, diluted in any way. I mean, it's a massive claim that Daniel had said hundreds of years before. I mean, everybody was, must, must have said, come on, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, you know, those are pretty grandiose terms, bro, you know. And then Luke takes that and he says, no, 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 we're not backing away from that. It's, that's, that's, what, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the human one to whom God has given all authority, supremacy, and glory, and it will never decay, ever. That's what Luke is saying. His dominion is everlasting. Simply put, if Easter means that Jesus lives, Ascension Day means that Jesus rules and reigns. That's the meaning of this story. If Easter means that Jesus lives, and it does, then ascension means that Jesus reigns. Jesus rules supreme. And again, I'm just inviting you as we, you know, remember this is a report. Well, actually Luke gives us to, gives us his report of the ascension both. He, Luke gives us the ascension at the end of his Jesus story, what we call the gospel of Luke. And Luke gives it to us again at the beginning of his story of Jesus working through the early, uh, through the early church. We call it the book of Acts. So it's a big deal for Luke. And, 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 and in compressed form, this explains so much about the earliest followers of Jesus. Against all opposition, they continued to advance the message of Christ, the message of God's love through Christ. Against all kinds of persecution, against all kinds of hardship. How, how do you explain that? Well, in part, you explain it because they were convinced that they were working on behalf of the sovereign king of the universe. And so when hardship comes, when obstacles come, it, okay, it's just an obstacle. It's not defeat. It's not, it doesn't change. We're, we are working on behalf of the real authority. Yeah, sure, Caesar's got some soldiers and they've got some, yeah, sure. But, but our mission, our obligation, our duty, our joy is on behalf of the president of all presidents, the Caesar of all Caesars, right? And so this notion of sovereignty um, carries through as you like let your mind skip through uh, what we know of from the book of Acts. Okay, so here's the second angle. By the time of Luke's writing here, um, the worship of the Caesars in the Roman culture would have been in full effect, right? So, you know, um, historians will tell you that that, you know, probably... The first, you know, like Julius Caesar, not so much. But later, by the time of by the time of Jesus, um, the 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 what we call, and this is not to be derogatory, just just to kind of be, try to be accurate, what we call the Caesar cult, the worship of Caesar, the protocols and programs around the worship of Caesar, was in full effect by the time of Luke's writing, and there is one pattern by now, by the time of Luke, that had become commonplace, and that is that. When a Caesar died, they would say, or someone would say, that after the death of this particular Caesar, they would say that they saw his now immaterial body ascending into the pantheon with the rest of the gods. In other words, after his death, Caesar 
became a god. That became like this recurring pattern. Which means that the next Caesar, who was normally the son of the Caesar who had died, that Caesar can now say he's what? The son of God. So this was the pattern in Roman culture with what we call, what again, not to be derogatory, but just the Caesar cult. Successively, for, for several iterations of this pattern by, by the time of Luke's writing, the Caesar was known not only as Caesar, which is a way of saying Lord, King, you know, whatever, but he was also known as Son of God. And so again, what do we find here in this story that Luke is telling us about this ascension moment, right? The, the folklore around Caesar, like every time one of these cats dies, somebody sees him ascending and becoming a god. And so we can call the next Caesar Son of God, which is a great title if your ambition is to rule the world, right? Call me Son of God, all right? So, so this is the pattern in Roman culture, in the, in the Greek imagination. The pattern is Caesar dies, Caesar ascends to the pantheon, he became a god, and so the next Caesar is Son of God. Again, Luke knows full well what he's doing with this story. Jesus ascending into heaven. What's he saying? Jesus is king of kings. He is Caesar over Caesar. The ascension is saying that Jesus is king and Caesar is not king. So ascension means that Jesus rules. Ascension means that Jesus is king and Caesar is not. So when we think about the significance of the ascension, these are the places where I begin in trying to put all this together. And then I think from that point, you can then ask the question, okay, so what? I think that's fair. I don't think that's irreverent to ask. I think it's legitimate to ask. And and the thing I would do, like if we were sitting at a round table having coffee and doing this discussion, the thing that I would suggest for the conversation is in answering that question, okay, so what? What's the significance? What's the significance of this for us? Ultimately, that's our question. Again, I would try to redirect that conversation and say, well, to really understand or uh, I think to really answer solidly what is the significance of the ascension for us, I think we would have to begin by asking what seems to have been the significance of the ascension for them, for the earliest followers of Jesus. And then we can allow those observations to then flow to us. And that, I think, is where this conversation could take lots of different directions. If we were sitting around a table having coffee and, and answering that question, and, you know, I, I, I would begin with kind of what I, what I said before, um, and that is, when I said that, probably a, not a good metaphor, but the whole idea of a, of a detonation of all of the redemptive activity of the early church. So this, this to me, is like the starting point. The, what's the so what of the ascension? Well, it is a, it is a, it is, it is a fuel for mission, for what it is that that we're doing in the world, how, how we perceive of ourselves in the world as as followers of Jesus, right? So, so the effect of the ascension on the earliest followers of Jesus was movement, was 
action, doing things redemptively in the world. And so that would be one of the first places where, where I would begin. And the second thing, again, sticking as closely as we can with the story, what do we see the apostles, the disciples, um, what do we see them do immediately after the ascension? Well, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the story of, of Pentecost. That's a, the next day on the church calendar coming up. Uh, what was happening when the day of Pentecost broke loose? Well, they were praying. The followers of Jesus were, were cultivating intimacy with the ever-present Jesus in prayer is what they were doing. So that would be like the second, like the second thing that we could take away from the significance of the ascension. The ascension does not mean, and I think I hope I've stressed this, the ascension does not mean that Jesus has gone elsewhere. To the contrary, the ascension means that Jesus is everywhere, always present. And so from that context then, prayer is, is just the act of, it, you know, so some, sometimes, sometimes we say, you know, I want to pray and really seek God. And I, that's fine. But just know that he's already present. And so I think what's rich about prayer as an ascension conscious believer is recognize that when I pray, I'm not, I'm not seeking after. I'm cultivating what's already present and available. And so I think it's rich to, to see that in the practice of the earliest followers of Jesus. When they came together to pray, they were cultivating this intimacy with the ever-present Christ that was always available to them. Um, you know, then you could think about, uh, again, I've, I've mentioned this several times, but just trying to broadly pull together the accounts that we have in the book of Acts. There's a certain, and I don't mean this, I don't mean this in the wrong way, but there's a certain confidence that you see in the believers, not haughty, Certainly they're humble, but there was a certain confidence that really characterizes um, their demeanor, how they carry themselves in the world, again, against opposition and so on. And, and again, this flows from the idea that Jesus really is king. We really are, we really are um, moving, living and moving and having our being in the context of the real supreme authority of the universe and there's a certain confidence that comes now again not haughty but there's a strength that comes from that um and so there, i've got several several layers of this but um i just want to kind of wrap up here but uh another thing though that i want to point out i don't know you know there's lots of different ways interesting ways to study church history and one of them is to study the history of at least more recently, we use the term revivals, you know, and so we think about in our own uh, history here in the United States, you know, there's the Great Awakening, and then what's known as the Second Great Awakening, and then roughly 1900, the Azusa Street Revival. So we know some of those, and that's an interesting way to think about church history. Well, there's another revival that we as Americans may not be quite as aware of, but it was sometime around early 1800s. Uh, and it's known as the Scottish Revival. And uh, there was a pastor. And, you know, historians kind of look back at that, like, what was the spark that created this 
revival. And it was a, just a real time of, I don't know, answers to prayer and missions and all kinds of things that came out of this Scottish revival right around 1800. And as historians have gone back and, and looked and looked and looked and like what seems to be the spark of this, there was a Scottish pastor who became, um, uh, what's the word? I don't know, fascinated <laughs> with the ascension. And he, and he just like, like, this is like for my whole life, this is like the second time ever that I've preached on the ascension. <laughs> but this guy preached on it every day. Like, if you go to that guy, if you, if you go hear a sermon from this guy, he's going to be talking about the ascension. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, he's preaching on the ascension. And he's drawn out these themes. And what I've said to you, I made this up. I get this from, from this guy, Edward Irving is his name. But it's, it's the supremacy of Christ. It's the presence of Christ. The always everywhere available supremacy of Christ, right? Like he's going to preach that to you. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and finally, boom, this, what we call revival, people's lives were changed. They began to experience answers to prayer. They began to practice evangelism and missions and all this stuff until, fi until finally this whole episode now known as the Scottish revival happened. So when you study the history of revival, you're going you're gonna to study that Scottish revival, and it happened because of a focus on the ascension. I just think that's rich. I think that's compelling for us and worth taking time like today to really, I don't, you know, to really meditate, to really focus in on the ascension, right? So do you see how this is different, like how this works in your soul? This is different from how Christmas works, right? Like however Christmas has worked in your soul over the years of your spiritual formation, however that is, that's a different kind of working than this ascension stuff, right? And then you think about Good Friday and the meaning of Good Friday in your soul. Well, ascension works different than Good Friday, right? Um, Easter, there's the whole resurrection celebration that's deep in us, and it works a certain work on the inside of us, right? Thankfully. But then this ascension thing is still different than that. You know what I mean? So, and that's loosely stated, but that's my hope for you, for you, is that we will allow these ascension themes to work their way down into us in the same way that Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter do and have worked their way into us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you.